Hello, and welcome to another episode of Nostalgic Mystery Radio. I'm your host, Stevie Kay, and it's my honor to bring you the radio shows of yesteryear. For this episode, I bring you P.D. James's Devices and Desires. When Adam Dalgleish visits Lark Soken, a remote headland community on the Norfolk coast in the shadow of a nuclear power station, he expects to be engaged only in the sad business of tying up his aunt's estate. But the peace of Lark Soken is illusory. Someone is terrorizing the neighborhood, and Dalgleish finds himself drawn into the lives of the isolated headlanders in an attempt to uncover what sinister forces are at work. So sit back and relax, and hope you enjoy this Nostalgic Mystery Radio. Thank you for listening. Devices and Desires by P.D. James Dramatized in six episodes by Neville Teller With Robin Ellis as Adam Dalgleish Episode 1 Tuesday the 20th of September Why do I never think of going on holiday unless there is something specific to do? For some people, most people perhaps, the ideal holiday is getting away and doing nothing. Why does that strike me as a form of torture? I suppose it all goes back to some guilt complex or other in childhood. Adam, you off? Hello, Manny. After I've shown my face at my publisher's party, yes. Yeah, well, I'm glad I caught you. It is Norfolk you're escaping to, isn't it? That's right. Lark Soken, on the coast, not far from East Haven. Uh, doing a bit of writing? Oh, unlikely. I have to sort out my late aunt's affairs, decide whether to sell her house or keep it, and so on. <laughs> well, could you do something for me? If the Norfolk CID managed to lay their hands on the Whistler, take a look at him for me, won't you? Check he is now chap in Battersea. Well, the Battersea Strangler... Yeah. Is that likely, Manny, given the timing and the M.O.? <laughs> Highly unlikely. But you know Uncle. Every stone in sight must be picked up and turned over. Here, Adam, I've uh, put together some details on the identikit, just in case. Hmm. Oh, and I've let Rickards know you'll be on his patch. Terry Rickards. Remember? I remember. Chief Inspector now, apparently. <laughs> Done all right for himself in Norfolk. Better than if he'd stayed with us. Anyway, suppose they do lay hands on the Whistler. Why should I do you out of a day in the country? Oh, I hate the country. That's decent of you, Adam. Have a good leave. You must understand, Adam, that poetry is a notoriously difficult market. All the same, Bill. Hello, Adam. Giving our publicity department a bad time again? Oh, hello, Nora. Nice to see you. He is the most uncooperative bastard I've ever met. You think he didn't want to be read? He doesn't seem to be doing too badly. It's all because I refuse to parachute into Wembley Stadium holding the new book in one hand and a microphone in the other. Or to bawl my verses at Waterloo Commuters. All we are thinking of is a tour of the country in a double-decker bus, stopping at schools, pubs, motorway cafes, village halls, you know, clubs... The commissioner and... wouldn't like it. Nor come to think of it, would I? Mm -hmm. Suit yourself. I need a topper. Adam? No, thanks. I'm driving. It must all be rather awkward, Adam. People who read the tabloids must want to know why a Scotland Yard detective wastes his time writing poetry... And people who read poetry must wonder what on earth a bard is doing catching murderers. In a nutshell, Nora, as ever, 
And that's what makes your recipes foolproof, even for a cack-handed cook like me. Which reminds me, did I hear someone say you're off to Norfolk? I suppose you've been called in to help catch that serial killer, the Whistler, isn't it? That, I'm thankful to say, is a job for the Norfolk CID. No, no, I'm just off for a few weeks' leave, straight after this. What a bit of luck. I've got some proofs, including a whole lot of original photographs that I really wouldn't want to trust to the post. Do be an angel and drop them off to the author for me. Norfolk is not a small county, Nora, dear. But your aunt lives near Larksoken, doesn't she? In a converted windmill, didn't you once tell me? My aunt died two months ago. Oh, I am sorry. But I will be staying in her house. My house now, I suppose. Well, then that's ideal. Please make sure you hand the parcel to Alice Mayer. She lives in Martyr's Cottage. Now, you won't just leave it at the door, will you? Losing these proofs would be quite disastrous. If Alice isn't at home, her brother Alex may be. He's director of the nuclear power station at Larksoken. Fine, fine. No, no, on second thoughts, don't hand it to him. Men can be extremely unreliable. Nora, I promise. If she's at home, I'll hand the parcel to Miss Mayer personally. If she isn't, I'll keep it till she is. I made good time, and by three I was driving through Lidset Village. A right turn, and I was crossing the open headland towards the fringe of pine trees which borders the North Sea. Suddenly, the potent tang of the ocean, and with it nostalgic memories of childhood holidays, of solitary adolescent walks struggling with my first poems, of my aunt's tall figure, binoculars round her neck, striding towards the haunts of her beloved birds. To my right yawned the dark mouth of a concrete pillbox, undemolished since the war. Ahead, the broken arches of the ruined Benedictine Abbey gleamed golden in the afternoon sun. And then the topsail of Larksoken Mill, and beyond it, against the skyline, the great grey bulk of the nuclear power station. It was 3.15 when I drew up outside Martyr's Cottage, a substantial L-shaped house whose rear commanded an uninterrupted view over fifty yards of scrub to the sea. Nora Gurney told me to expect you. This is where I live, work, and write. What a splendid room. And as my work involves cooking, it's also my kitchen. So I see. Uh, where shall I leave this? Oh, uh, on the desk, if you don't mind. It's good of you to be so accommodating, Mr. Dalgleish. I'm afraid Nora is implacable. It's what makes her such a good editor. It was no trouble, I assure you. Uh, may I offer you a cup of coffee? Well, I won't, if you don't mind. I, I'd like to get across to the mill and unpack and so forth. Of course. I'll walk you to your car. I was sorry about your aunt. Uh, sorry for you, I mean. Uh, to die in your sleep without distress to yourself or inconvenience to others, well... That seems to me an enviable way to go. But to you, she must have seemed immortal. She did. I'll miss her. But I'm not sure that I really knew her. And I'm left wishing I'd tried harder. She was a very private person. And it always seemed a little uh, presumptuous to encroach on that sort of self-sufficiency. Perhaps you share it. Uh, but if you can tolerate company, I'm having a few people to dinner on Thursday night. They're mostly colleagues of Alex's from the power station. Would you care to join us? 7.30 for 8? That's very kind of you. Thank you. I'd, I'd like to very much. Aren't those the Blaney children? Yes. That's poor Teresa pushing the baby and trying to cope with the twins. The whole burden has fallen on her since her mother died. 
Teresa! How long has it been? Oh, six weeks. They're managing, but only just. Ryan Blaney doesn't welcome interference, and I can sympathize with that. Once he lets his defenses down, half the social workers in Norfolk will move in on him. I'd like to give them a lift home, but I think there'd better be someone in the car they know. I'll come with you. It's Scudder's Cottage. (laughs) Teresa! Here's Mr. Dalgleish to give you all a lift home. Scudder's Cottage, small-windowed, picturesque under its tiled, dipping roof, was much lighter inside than I'd expected. A rear door, now open, led to a glass extension giving a view of the headland. Propped on a chair was a large portrait of a woman, painted with remarkable power. With a wide, full mouth, arrogant, staring eyes, and wild, pre-Raphaelite hair... She stood against the backdrop of the headland, dominating the landscape, arms outstretched. Ryan Blaney's intention to produce a study of evil was as clear as if the portrait had been labelled. You didn't know I could do something like that, did you? Good afternoon, Ryan. It's certainly a remarkable painting, but what are you going to do with it? I doubt if she commissioned it or that she sat for you. She didn't need to. I know that face. No, I'm showing it at the Norwich Arts Exhibition in a fortnight. That is, if I can get it there. The van's out of use. I'll be driving to London next week. I could deliver it. If you like. I'll leave it packed and labelled in the shed. You can collect it whenever you like. No need to knock. Oh, I, I don't think you've met Mr Dalgleish. He saw the children on the road and thought to give them a lift. How do you do? I was sorry to hear about your wife. I liked your aunt. She phoned to offer help when Bridget was ill, and when I said there was nothing she or anyone could do, she didn't keep fussing. Some people can't keep away from a deathbed. They seem to get their kicks from watching people die. Like the whistler. No, she never fussed. I like the picture. It's a remarkable piece of work. Who is it? My landlady. She's trying to get us evicted. It's Hilary Robots. She's in charge of personnel and so on at the power station. She bought this cottage when she first arrived here three years ago. Why does she want you to leave? Profit. She wants to sell the place over our heads and she doesn't care if we're all thrown out in the street. She's tried everything short of sending in the heavy mob. I don't think she'd stop at that in the last resort. I hold her responsible for Bridget's death. She badgered my wife into her grave. I hate the woman. You've certainly made your feelings pretty clear in the portrait, Mr Blaney. A little too obvious, perhaps. Not that Hilary Robarts is a woman to be easily intimidated. I hope this is something important, Alex. I'm really up to my eyes. Have you seen this? Neil Pascoe's latest new sheet from Panup. Panup. What a misnomer. It's not people against nuclear power, it's Pasco against nuclear power. Pasco and a few dozen other ill-informed hysterics. Of course, I've seen it. I'm on the mailing list. Why? Many readers will probably have learned by now that I am being sued by Miss Hilary Robarts, the acting administrative officer at Lark Soken Power Station. I'm being charged with libel arising from what I wrote in the May issue. This is just the latest example of the threat to free speech presented by the nuclear energy lobby. For heaven's sake, Neil, this bloody machine is unworkable. It'd be quicker to write the addresses by hand. It's better since you cleaned it. 
And the new ribbon looks fine. Why on earth don't you buy a new one? It saved time in the end. You know perfectly well, Amy. I can't afford it. You can't afford a new typewriter, and yet you're going to save the world. You don't need possessions to save the world, Amy. Jesus Christ had nothing. No home, no money, no property. I thought you said when I came here that you weren't religious. I don't believe Christ was God. I don't believe there is a God, but I believe in what He taught. If He wasn't God, I don't see it matters much what He taught. There's a Bible in the caravan somewhere. You could read about Him if you wanted to. Make us start with Mark's Gospel. No thanks. I had enough of that in the home. What home? Just a home. Before Timmy was born. How long were we there? What the hell does it matter, Neil? Two weeks, if you must know. Two weeks too many. Then I ran away and we found a squat. Now we're here. Look, if you're not going to help with these envelopes, you might as well go and put a new washer on that outside tap. It's been dripping for weeks and Timmy's always falling about in the mud. Amy, we must talk. If that Robarts woman goes ahead with her legal action, I'll need money. We've got to make plans. You mean we might have to leave the caravan? It's possible. But why? I mean, you aren't going to find anything cheaper. Try getting a room for two pounds a week. We're bloody lucky to have this place. But there's no work here, Amy. If I have huge damages to pay, I'll have to get a job. That means London, and you couldn't live here alone. Why not? I've lived in worse places. On what? What would you do for money? Well, with you gone, I could go to the social security, couldn't I? I could send their snoopers around as much as they liked. No one could say I was having sex with you if you weren't here. Is that what you want, Amy? For me not to be here? Don't be daft. I was only teasing. Honestly, Neil, you should see yourself. Talk about misery. Anyway, it might never happen. The libel action, I mean. She might withdraw it. She might even drown on one of those swims she takes every night at nine, regular as clockwork. Maybe the whistler will get her. I can't wish her dead, Amy. You can't preach love and practice hatred. Or you might win the action, and then she'd have to pay you. <laughs> That'd be a laugh. <laughs> Not very likely, I'm afraid. I went to the Citizens Advice Bureau in Norwich last Friday. They thought she had a case. They said I should get myself a lawyer. Look, Neil, it'll never come to court. I promise you. But this action shows that we, the ordinary people of this country, are making an impact. I've told you, Alex. I've seen it. If Pasco had any sense, he'd get himself a good lawyer and keep his mouth shut. He can't afford a lawyer, and he won't be able to pay damages. In the interests of the station, I think you should drop it. The man isn't worth the trouble. He is to me. He libelled me and disseminated his libel as widely as he could. A woman whose response to Chernobyl is that only thirty-one people were killed, who can dismiss as unimportant the world's greatest nuclear disaster, is totally unsuitable to work in an atomic power station. That was a clear allegation of professional incompetence. I'm sorry, but I do not intend to let him get away with it. Hillary, we're trying to win over the locals, not antagonise them. Let it go before someone starts a fund to pay for his defence. One martyr on Larksoak and Headland is enough. That's what it's all about, isn't it? The reputation of the station, your reputation. What about my reputation? If I drop the action now, it'll be a clear admission that he was right, that I am not fit to work here. Oh, Hillary, he hasn't hurt your reputation with anyone who matters, and suing him isn't going to help. 
Anyway, what do feelings matter? It's the work that's important. They matter to me, and that's something you've never understood, have you? Life is about feeling. Loving is about feeling. It was the same with the abortion. Did you ever ask yourself what I felt, what I needed? You forced me to have it. No,、oh, that's ridiculous. How could I have forced you? I thought you felt as I did—that it was impossible for you to have a child. Oh no, it wasn't. It would have been inconvenient, embarrassing, awkward, expensive, but it wasn't impossible. Still isn't. All right, all right. Have a child by all means, if that's what you want. Just don't expect me to father it. That's all. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about Neil Pasco and Panup. We have gone to a lot of trouble to promote good relations with the local community, and I'm not having it all thrown away through a totally unnecessary legal action, particularly now when work is about to begin on the new reactor. Then try to prevent it. And since we're talking about public relations, I'm surprised you haven't mentioned Ryan Blaney and Scudder's cottage. Oh, that's a different matter. My cottage, in case you'd forgotten. What am I expected to do about that? Handed over to him and his kids, rent-free in the interest of good public relations. That has nothing to do with me as director. But if you want my opinion, I think you're ill-advised to try and force him out simply because you've got a legal case. It isn't as if you want the cottage. I do want the cottage. It's mine. I bought it, and now I want to sell it. If we're moving to London in the next three months, there's not much time. I want to get it on the market as soon as possible. My dear Hilary, if I were you, I shouldn't make any plans on the basis of my possible new job. It's all unsubstantiated rumour. I've had no offer. If it did ever materialise, you and the other senior managers here would be the first to know. Who will you be responsible to? The Secretary of State directly, or the Atomic Energy Authority? Read my lips, Hilary. There has been no offer. Controller of nuclear power, I like it. London will be heaven on earth after this godforsaken hole. Oh, Hillary! Larksoken Mill was built in 1825, a picturesque brick tower four stories high. I never asked my aunt, but I guessed that its main attraction for her had been its remoteness, the surrounding bird sanctuaries, and the impressive view of headland, sky, and sea from the top story. After I'd taken some of her clothes over to the old rectory for the church jumble, leaving them in the scullery as was the custom, I climbed up to this room, with its windows at each of the compass points. My aunt had furnished it simply: a small writing table and chair facing the North Sea, a telephone, and her binoculars. It was late afternoon, and the headland lay enriched by the mellow afternoon light. The sea, a wide expanse of wrinkled blue, with a painter's stroke of purple laid on the horizon. Far to the south, the roof of Scudder's cottage; to the west, the gables of Lidset village; to the north, the huge bulk of the power station. Directly to my left, the flint walls of Martyr's cottage glistened in the afternoon sun, while some way beyond, set among the Californian pines. Was the dull square cottage rented by Hilary Robarts? Hello. Is that Mr. Dalglish? Yes. Yes, it is. This is Terry Rickards. I got word from the yard that you're on your way down here. I'd like to come over for a chat, if that would be all right with you. Yes, of course. How about this evening? Fine. Say nine o'clock. 
Well, I'm just sorry you won't be meeting my wife, Susie. She's having our first baby in a couple of weeks. Oh. Gone to stay with her mother in York. Huh. Ma-in-law didn't like the idea of her being in Norfolk with a whistler on the prowl. <laughs> Not with me working the hours I do. Well, she has a point. Four victims so far, isn't it? Yes, and Valerie Mitchell won't be the last if we don't catch him soon. How long has it been going? Fifteen months. Started in June a year ago. First victim was found just after midnight in a shelter at the end of East Haven Promenade. The local tart, incidentally, although he may not have known or cared. And then? Eight months later, 30-year-old school teacher cycling home to Hunstanton. She stopped on a lonely stretch of road because of a puncture. And he happened to be around. Yeah, struck lucky, I suppose you'd say. Then another gap, just six months this time. He got a barmaid from Ipswich who'd been visiting her granny and was daft enough to wait alone for the late bus. When it arrived, there was no one at the stop. A couple of local youths got off. Well, they'd had a skin for couldn't tell us much. Except what they described as a kind of mournful whistling coming from deep in the woods. That's where we found her. Then, last week, young Valerie Mitchell, just 15. And she died because she missed the 9.40 bus from East Haven to Cobsmarsh. This is uh, trademark, the, the whistle. Yeah... Heard by the three people first on the scene after the East Haven murder. One just heard a whistle. One said it sounded like a hymn. And the third, who was a churchwoman, claimed she could identify it precisely. Now the day is over. Now the day is over, night is drawing nigh. Shadows of the evening fall across the sky. Hmm. It's a Sunday school hymn. They <laughs> had a devilly serial murders. No motive. At least nothing that a sane man can understand. We've had a psychological profile. I could have written it myself. A loner, probably from a disturbed family background, may have a dominant mother, could be impotent with a hatred of women. Mm. And uh, some bizarre sexual hang-up all his own. What sexual hang-up? His other trademarks. The ones we've kept out of the media. Each of the victims was strangled, and in each case she was found with her mouth stuffed with hair. Her own hair? You mean he cuts off her hair? Her pubic hair. Cuts off her pubic hair, stuffs it into her mouth. Ye gods. And then he uses the knife on her forehead. What about his M.O.? Well, it's pretty consistent. He chooses a road intersection, drives the car or van into the side of one road, goes across and waits at the other. Then he drags his victim into the bushes. Strangles her, carries out his perverted bit of tradecraft. Goes back to the car and uh, makes his getaway. With the last three murders, it seems to have been pure chance that a suitable victim did, in fact, come along at all. If he doesn't select and stalk his victim, he'd normally expect a long wait. That suggests he's usually out after dark, a, a night worker, gamekeeper, that kind of job. And he goes prepared, on the watch for a quick kill. Yeah, that's how I see it. Tonight I could make a strike. Tonight I could be lucky. And by God, he's getting lucky. Two victims in the last two weeks. So, you're looking for a local man, a loner, someone who has a night job, the use of a car or van, <laughs> and the knowledge of hymns ancient and modern. <laughs> that should narrow the field. Well, you think so, wouldn't you? You know, it's hardly a waking moment when he's not in my mind. Well, when I'm not imagining what he looks like. Where he is. What he's thinking. Yes, he's out there. 
somewhere, watching, waiting. I only hope to God we get him before he kills again. Thursday, the twenty-second of September. Although I knew of Alice Mayer's reputation as a cookery writer, I'd never read any of her books, and I had no idea as to which culinary tradition, if any, she belonged. I didn't know what to expect, but in the event, her dinner was excellent. The wild ducks carved by Alex Mayer were recognisably ducks. The piquant sauce, unfamiliar to me, enhanced the flavour of the birds to perfection. Afterwards, we ate orange sorbet, followed by cheese and fruit, a menu intended to please the guests rather than to demonstrate the ingenuity of the cook. You must give me the secret of the sauce, Alex. Oh, I'd love to try it out at the rectory. Not, I fear, that the Copleys are likely to appreciate it. No, no, no secret, Meg. It's in my new book. Those proofs you brought down from London, Mr. Dalglish. Ah, if I'd known, I might have opened the pass before delivering it. <laughs> Miles has certainly missed an excellent meal. I can't imagine what's held him up. Do you know of anything, Alex? No, nothing. It's surprising he hasn't been in touch. It's not like him. Miles Lessingham is our operations superintendent, Mr. Dalglish. He's usually punctilious about such things. Who'd like coffee? Mm. Yes. Yeah. Uh, there's a table and chairs in the courtyard. I thought we could switch on the garden lights and have it outside. Lovely. Yes. Oh, come on. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Ah, it's certainly a beautiful evening. Mm. Just the sort of evening, perhaps, on which poor Agnes Poley was dragged out of this cottage to be burned at the stake. What makes you say that, Mr. Dalglish? Doesn't the stone plaque by the front door tell us she was burned at Ipswich in September 1557? Ah, the policeman's eye. Perhaps you registered the biblical reference as well. I'm afraid I did. Ecclesiastes, chapter three, verse fifteen. Are you familiar with it? One of the blessings and burdens of a conventional religious upbringing. Well, you have the advantage of us. I'm afraid I've never bothered to look it up. The plaque was in place when we took over Martyrs Cottage. It's simply become part of the landscape. Don't keep us in suspense, Mr. Dalglish. How does the verse go? If my memory serves, that which hath been is now, and that which is to be hath already been, and God requireth that which is past. Hmm. Interesting. An early version of the theory of relativity. You know, what it's really saying is that all time is one, and that therefore there's no such thing as the present. I don't think I quite follow. Well, take the very words I'm now speaking. As each one passes my lips, it already belongs to history. It's happened. It's past event. In fact, mathematically speaking, there is no measurable point of time which can legitimately be called now. In other words, to echo Ecclesiastes, now is what has been. And what about the future, Alex? That which is to be. Hath already been. That reminds me of a line by T. S. Eliot: "The things that are going to happen have already happened." If that's an argument for predestination, I don't believe it. We all have free will. We can choose whether we do right or wrong.、Mm, I'm not so sure. There's a strong case to suggest that we're all pre-programmed to act in precisely the way we do, even when we're exercising our so-called free will. Haven't we all done something and then wondered what on earth made you do it? I suppose that's what's meant by destiny. I can't help thinking about that wretched woman. How does the plaque describe her? Protestant martyr, dragged off, kicking and screaming by a bunch of brutes. 
to be slaughtered for sticking to what she believed in. Just picture her state of mind. She was manhandled out of this cottage on a summer's night all those years ago. She must have known she was going to her death. And what a death. Could you imagine anything worse than dying by fire? The agony. You specialise in death, Mr. Dalglish. It's not unnatural death that interests me, Miss Mayor. It's the state of mind of those who perpetrated. You want to know what was going through the minds of the men who lashed Agnes Poli to the stake and set fire to her? I'll tell you. Rage. Frustration. They'd come up against someone who wasn't prepared to compromise, and a woman at that. I wonder what's going through the mind of the whistler as he stalks his victims. A mind like that can only be diseased. Even people with diseased minds can be held criminally responsible. Oh, ah, that's Lessingham's Porsche at last. Such a noisy car. <laughs> Every time. Hello, Miles. We've given you up. My apologies, Alice. Too late for dinner, I know. But not, I hope, for a drink. God, do I need one. Where have you been, Miles? We waited for you for nearly an hour. I've been considering how best to answer that question for the last 20 minutes. There are a number of possibilities. I could say that I've been helping the police with their inquiries, or that there was a little unpleasantness on the road, or that I've been involved in a murder. What on earth do you mean? Actually, Alice, it was all three. The Whistler has killed again. I found the body. In episode one of Devices and Desires by P.D. James, dramatised by Neville Teller, Robin Ellis played Adam Dalgleish, Suzanne Bertiche was Alice Mayer, Paul Shelley, Alex Mayer, Susanna Doyle, Hilary Robarts, Bruce Alexander, Chief Inspector Rickards, Emily Richard, Meg Dennison, Sasha Paul, Amy, Will Johnson, Neil Pascoe, Dermot Crowley, Blaney, Dominic Jeffcott, Miles Lessingham, David Timpson, Manny, Caroline John, Nora, and John Baddeley played Costello. Devices and Desires was directed by Matthew Walters as a Ladbrook radio production for BBC Radio 4. Mystery Radio presentation. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please feel free to like and rate this podcast on your favorite app. Also, there's a Nostalgic Mystery Radio YouTube page for your perusal to subscribe to. You can contact me by emailing me at nostalgicmysteryradio at gmail.com. I hope you have a blessed day or evening. And again, thank you for listening. <laughs>